Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Peter Bogdanovich. Thank you. Thank you. It's amazing. Jerry Lewis has been a movie star for 62 years, since he was 20. Well, he wasn't a movie star at 20. He was in nightclubs then. It all started in nightclubs, but we'll talk about that. Um, He has produced, directed, written, starred in a number of classics. I've known him for 47 years. And he's been a friend uh, to me for all those years. And he's been a friend to a lot of people. Uh, He's made more people on earth laugh than anyone else alive. The, uh, the, the, there's, a, there's a line in uh, John Ford's the, the, the Last Hurrah, how do you thank a guy for a million laughs? Well, we're going to start with a, a, a little rhapsody of clips as an appetizer. Do you have those clips ready? Run them now. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Jerry Lewis. Quite nice. You're a hit in New York. I don't have problems in New York. <laughs> and you went to my, you went to my room. You were in Paris yesterday. Yeah, that's your house. Yeah. That's my room. Yeah. I love, I love the fact that people will mention France, and the the article in Newsweek or Time will have nothing to do with me, nor I with it. And if it's about France, it starts. Oh, of course, there are an audience that appreciates the Jerry Lewis humor, but we don't understand how they feel about this trade embargo. <laughs> you know, I've got about a hundred of those. It's ridiculous. Jerry, do you remember your first laugh that you ever got? Yes, I sure do. Can you tell me about it? Yeah. But <laughs> not right now. <laughs> Yeah, as a matter of fact, it was very telling because uh, I was working with my mom and dad 
at the uh, President Hotel in Swan Lake. It's really the hotbed of the, uh, the Jewish Alps. <laughs> and uh, I was five, and my dad found out that if I was part of his presentation, instead of $20 for my dad and my mom, they would make it 25 My dad encouraged me to do it, and uh, I sang Brother, Can You Spare a Dime at a pretty good time. We were in the heat of the Depression, and that was what I did. But when I completed the song, I bowed like my dad taught me, and my foot slipped, and it went into the footlights. Now, years ago, the footlights were large, number two photo floods as we know them today, and that's what the footlights are. My foot hit the bulb, smoke, noise, bang, and it scared the bejesus out of me. I have no idea what I looked like, but they thought it was very funny. (laughs) And that laugh has stuck in my brain for uh, 77 years. Wow. It was a noisy bulb. (laughs) It It was very, very, when I say telling... It was something, at five years old, I don't suspect we're supposed to remember a hell of a lot. And I really can't tell you a hell of a lot about my life until around seven. But this prevails at five. Was that the bug that bit you, so to speak? Well, you can't. (laughs) Uh, We can easily write it off by saying that was the bug. And after that, I didn't want to be on a stage unless I broke a bulb. No. (laughs) Um, It, it were, was, you, were you scared at that moment when, when, it, when it happened? If whatever I'm going to tell you now is all bullshit. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, am, I am referring to what I read I said. <laughs> so go from there, Peter. <laughs> I think I had a rash that night, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you once said to me something that I, that I remember very vividly. You said, funny, funny had better be sad somewhere. What did you mean? Did I break a bulb that day? <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember saying it, Peter. Well, you were saying, I think you were talking about the, 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 the comedians often have, the comedy comes out of tragedy, or that comes out of... Yeah, but I must have a better way of making note of that. Uh, I think what I might have said was that if you don't have, if the specific material that's being done, if, if you don't have that audience get a rooting interest, which comes from pathos... Rooting interest comes from care, concern. People that have a, a, a good emotional and sensitive lifestyle, they will understand the comedy better. And certainly for those that do it, will understand it better. Because comedy is very fragile. It comes from a very fine line that we draw. And uh, if you see a performer doing really broad broad slapstick comedy, beneath all of that is some very sensitive areas in his life where he to project that to you and you would hear that, it would all make sense. 
but to see a comic that shouldn't be doing it, uh, that's as sad as it's ever going to get for him, you know. But he doesn't have any of that stuff beneath all of it, so he can't really connect with the audience. And that's what happens when some of the, the inners of the workings of comedy aren't there. There are those who can perform and do a play and do dramatic stuff, not caring about it, but because they're wonderful actors and actresses, they get it, they get it done. But if you're a comedian and if you love to make people laugh and if that's what you've committed your life to, you better have it come from something meaningful or it won't mean anything, not only that night, but ever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the night I, I sat with Charlie Chaplin, the end of seven days and nights that we spent together at his home in Switzerland, the last dinner we had was when he said to me, don't ever let them forget the dog. And I didn't know what he meant. I said, that I, that I worked with? He said, no, 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 no. He said, when I did The Man on the Street, watching the overweight lady walking down the street, when I saw that, I went over and I kicked her in the behind and ran away. And it was a short he was making for, uh, for his company that was along with uh, Buddy Rogers and Mary Pickford's company. They looked at the material and they said, it doesn't fly, Charlie. It's just, it does not work. And he said he would redo it. He did redo it. And by the way, that was the first reel of an important film introducing Chaplin's major film work. So we went and he redid it, and he was sitting on the step, or he was sitting on the edge of the curb, and uh, he went back to that shot, and he sees the lady coming, but he's got a little puppy dog sitting next to him, and he's eating his sandwich, and he comes to the last bite, and he gives it to the puppy. And the puppy took it and ran away. Then the lady entered. He got up and kicked her in the ass, and it was hysterical. <laughs> it was incredibly funny. No one could believe it, nor did Charlie. He, he, did, he did believe that if he had a feeling for that tramp, that would work. And it did. Right. And it changed a great deal of his approach to why people are sensitive and why is it that they have this depth to go where you go? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people that are embarrassed by the fact that we dig down deeply and that we don't, we don't fear the psyche and we're not really concerned about an immediate lobotomy because of the way we think. Um, but when you get into it, you will, remember, you will remember this. You never saw a great comedian that had a tremendous life in our business from beginning to end, and he was buried, and his memory will go on for hundreds of years. That came from a wealthy family. There's never been one. That's odd, isn't it? That's fascinating. It's fascinating, but it's also true. Never has there been a successful perfect man doing comedy 
that crossed all the lines you and said- lived a long life. I can name 30 for you that all came from rough beginnings. But we have been, George Burns and Jack Benny and the Marx Brothers and myself and Jackie Gleason, we will sit at the table of Hillcrest for hours trying to come up with answers to some of these things. That had never been answered. We never came up with anyone except Fred McMurray and we were embarrassed. And <laughs> I didn't mean for that to get a laugh, but <laughs> I'll remember it. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, that, that's, that's, that's just it. The, the, sad, the sad edge of comedy, whether it's there but for the grace of God go I, that dynamic, or it goes even deeper than we know. But it better be there. Yeah. Or it doesn't work. You once said to me another thing. You said if you're deprived of love when you're young, you can never have it given back to you. Is, is that part of your need for laughter? What book have you been reading? <laughs> when did I say that? To me in an interview. Were you there? I was there. <laughs> it was that long interview we did. It's in Who the, Who the Hell's In It. Say it again. If you're deprived of love when you're young, you can never have it given back to you. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. Did you write that crap in the book? No, you said it. Did you write it? I, I put it in the book. You schmuck. <laughs> you got a, a lot of cards like that? <laughs> We're going to miss you, Peter. <laughs> Jesus Christ. How old, how long is our friendship going on? 45 years? 47. Oh, Christ. And we never did this before. Yeah, not Now this. you know why. <laughs> when you were, when you were, before you met Dean, you were doing a, a record act, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> what a memory. It's incredible. You didn't even look at a card for I that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted, to get to, I wanted to get to your work. Yeah, I started as a record pantomimist. What did you do? You played a record and... and Mouthed to it, yeah. So we could run a clip from The Errand Boy, which has that... Yeah, that, that dynamic is part of that. Do you want to run it? You better. <laughs> Would you run number five... Number five. My life is a number. <laughs> so you were doing a record act, something like that, only you were singing. I mean, the, the, the records were people singing. Sinatra, Sophie Tucker. They were laying bricks, Peter. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> they were vocals. Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. And I would mouth to the vocals. And wh- when, when did you meet... How did, how did the whole meeting with Dean happen? Can you I tell needed me? a vocal. <laughs> Is it over? 
I'll give you a copy of the book. A whole meeting is there on page 12. Well, can you tell a little bit about it no. to the folks? A little bit about Dean? What about him? Well, how did it happen? I'd like to know the, that there was a moment when you came out with a piece of steak or something. I'd like to hear that story. They would like to hear it. Would you like to hear about Dean? Or would you like to see me kill him? <laughs> let, me, let, me, <laughs> let me tell you about telling stories. We said we would be completely candid and no polishing. We say the things we mean, otherwise we won't do this, right? Just the way right. we feel it, okay. I have been asked about how Dean and I met. So much in my career that I now tell it and will, of course, be as well-mannered as I can be. I will succumb to the interviewer in this case. I will tell the story. But each time I do... I hope that the audience only heard the key facts of the story and didn't read beneath my insincerity, which troubled me on a couple of occasions because I'm telling an audience about the most important man in my life and the most important thing that happened in my life. And if I can't do that, from my heart, they don't have to be there to listen to any more that I had to say. I was always conflicted because I couldn't just throw that information out again and have it mean what it means to me and my heart. So when I do get an interviewer and they ask me, are there some things that are out of bounds or out of line? I said, no, nothing that you can possibly ask me that's going to bother me. Don't worry about it. Except, please, don't ask how Dean and I got started. <laughs> so, I ask you, Peter, <laughs> would you be good enough to tick, stick the fucking notes in your pocket? I yeah. want to do a Jerry Lewis You'll, moment. You will have a better night. If help. You help? You don't, you don't need help. You're right. supposed to be this intelligent very, very competent writer of these books. Don't tell me you sit with cards and then write. Well... Well what? Well, <laughs> you usually work alone, and I usually work alone, so it's a little, you know, disconcerting. Yeah, but I had a partner, and I learned how to do it with two. Yeah, but it took a, took a minute or two. Yeah. Let me tell you how it started. <laughs> Come on, Peter. I've done a lot of stuff in 77 years. I know. I'm going to have my 83rd birthday in March, and the things we're planning... Thank you. ...are all very exciting, and we're going to be touching on some wonderful stuff. And as I go through the plans that they're going to have or want me to go through for the party, I really sit there and I say, my God, 
God, what stuff. You realize that I go to France, for example, and the headline in Figaro, their important paper, or the New York Times in France, says, the king is back. They don't even have that there in that country. They have presidents. I come, and they see the words, king is back. That's going against everything that they think and believe. But they got me in a place that says that, and they got everyone else in a place that says that. Look at what this Jew from Newark pulled off. (laughs) The same year that happened, I get a call, and I'm told I've been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. First performer in show business to ever receive that honor. Nobel Peace Prize, okay? Then it makes me think, well, they certainly are not going to award that prestigious award to me for the water cooler in that last clip. (laughs) They're going to give it to me because they found out that my love for children was basically genuine and that what I felt for children and how I lived my life is really directed around and for children. And I'm happy to proclaim that I'm the only man that ever raised over $2 billion for a cause. Thank you. I hate to use that, but it works. (laughs) There are things that I have done that strangers in my life recall either they are cinemaphiles or they just love to look through books and research and they come up with some of the stuff that I have been privy to and it's incredible. And I don't understand how you don't remember all that stuff. Being one of my oldest friends. I remember everything. Well, come up with something. Aha! Uh-huh. The hooker in Newark. I knew you were going to get to that. <laughs> <coughs> I want to hear about Dean and you. How that? Not. <laughs> not necessarily how you met. But let's talk about how the, how the writing or the con- conception of what became Martin and Lewis. Can we talk about that? No. <laughs> now, I asked you before, I said, is there, can we talk about anything? You said anything you want. Right. Well. I lied. <laughs> well, if that's all you want to know about. That's not all. I just want Well, then go to the next item. Okay, well, why don't we run a clip? <laughs> why don't we run a clip? Number 11. You got the clips? Run number 11. That's a very good choice. Thank you. It's hard to believe. You know, as I look at that, I think to myself, that's hard to believe. That these two guys, that material was shot like September of 50. 
Okay. Uh, those two guys on that screen were presenting that to the American public. And in 1950, we were already signed to NBC for $60 million. That was the beginning of four years with NBC. Uh, at the conclusion of 1956, when we were finished, we had earned $300 million. I got it on me if you want to see. <laughs> and what's, what really had the sharp eye of the viewer, really had their curiosity, and critics, of course, was what was it? There was nothing that anyone could explain when they were asked, well, you saw them. Yes. What did they do? I don't know. <laughs> but you were there tonight at the Copa. Yes, I was, with a party of 10. And these are all the people at 10 at this next table at Lindy's. And they all said, what do they do? And they were like, I had no idea. And nobody could explain it. No one could explain what they did. Now, I could easily tell you that Jerry came out first to get a contact with the audience. He then introduced his partner. His partner would come out and sing two or three songs, and then Jerry would come out and interrupt him. He would become terribly offended at this nonsense and told him he wanted to finish singing his songs. And Jerry would say, why? I heard them already. And... They went from there and did an hour and 45 minutes. Some would say, of what? I don't know. Winchell, Walter Winchell once said to you, I think after the, he saw you at the Havana Madrid, that uh, it was the way you and Dean looked at each other. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he read the affection sooner than anybody. Because he wrote it in his column. He wrote... There's a magic there that you see when you see Jerry looking at Dean, but if you look the other way and you see it, Dean looking at Jerry. Yeah. We had an incredible, unbelievable, we were awestruck with one another. I'll give you an example. Um, I could write a routine and ask Dean if he liked it. We'd say, yeah, yeah, that's okay. We didn't rehearse it, but I threw it at him in the third show at the Copa. And he didn't miss a beat. He read it, and it entered that brain and clamped down like a brand. And I'm standing there doing it because I know it, and he's just unbelievably on the money. And I was awestruck. How could he do that? I could have taken one of the best actors in the world and rehearsed him for three days and he would never get it close to how good that was. Yeah. He didn't miss a beat. That's impossible to, to fathom. How could that be? Well, I thought I was very lucky and I thought, we got a big chance here. And he did it again. And then he did it again. And then I found he was having all of this great fun throwing me somewhere in the back. 
in the, in, the, in the garbage. Go away. I don't need you. It wasn't that tone. It was just that good. Yeah. And he did it consistently for 10 years. His memory was incredible. But one night, he and I were talking about when we feel the button, the button that tells us that's good to go after because he'll pick up on it. And he was talking to me about he thought that he had the capacity to do that more and more because he was so thrilled with how I responded to it. He wound up performing for me. He was, he was hoping that I would appreciate what he was doing. Well, the funniest moments on, on the comedy hour is when you, you break up at him or he breaks up at you. Yeah, well, they were real. You know, people, <clears throat> comedians and straight men would break up to get the audience to understand it's time to laugh. Yeah. We never did that. We never had to do that. We've ruined schedules and timing year in and year out by going way over, way under, but we always came out on time. Uh, David, yes. uh, do you have any of those... Uh, those um, uh, lemon drops? No, but I've Well, give me something, because I'm getting... Cl- now, does that ever happen to you? Oh, yes. You want some? <laughs> no, go ahead. The, le- the lemon drop's just as good. Thank you, David. You're welcome, You told me once... <laughs> you told me once that uh, Dean... Go ahead, Peter. <laughs> you told me once that Dean never wasn't aware of how good he was. Oh, of course not. That was one of the magical things. That was one of the things that people read about Dean. They saw him and they loved him. And they loved him and could never explain really, well, they didn't love Crosby that way. They loved Dean that way. Yeah. What was it? Well, it was more... Because he was kind of standoffish, and in his standoffishness was his shy side. He was very shy. He liked to be away from crowds. And he did what he had to do on stage, and he got all of the gracious, wonderful stuff from that that he needed. And he stayed there. He was comfortable there. But people read into that, that he's basically a sensitive, very shy, sensitive loving man doing his kind of work with the idiot and it's working yeah. you know and and we were trying to get all of that in a box you called it sex and slapstick right that was the article that that uh, you wrote it first huh you had the you had the phrase first and then leo roston no leo roston had the phrase first he oh, wrote he did? It. yes he wrote it he wrote when he saw us at the copy he wrote Sex and slapstick. And he was able to determine that what we had planned, which was a determination that was wrong, to have the audience wonder about this and that. And does Dean really care for the kid? And watch. Watch what happens. And when I would do anything to someone in the audience, I would start a heckle with a customer in the audience. You'd always see Dean walk half between where he was and where I am with the customer. And all he was doing was backing me up. 
He never knew he was moving that way till I showed it to him on film one day. Mm. I said, don't you know that your love for this kid is very, very, it's not only is it important, but it becomes very visual to the audience. They see it. And you got to, I said to him in that discussion, I said, you have to remember, they're not going to give us $100 million if you say, did you take a bath this morning? And I say, why? Is there one missing? <laughs> they, they ain't going to pay that kind of money for that joke. He said, well, why are they paying it? I said, it's not that joke. It's everything we do before it. It's everything we do after it. It's the things that we do between one another, testing one another's ability. The, the constant fencing that we have and that we do, and we end it always with love yeah. and affection and sentimentality and all of the things that people are usually kind of reticent about. I said, but you have to trust it. I have to trust it. And I knew you to stay strong for me because I am, remember, I'm the guy that they write about and you're the one that they seem to forget about. So they are testing our relationship. Jerry this, Jerry that, oh, he did this and he was crazy and so forth and so on. And at the end of it, oh, and Dean sang a song. And I said to him that night, I couldn't take this. I couldn't handle that blurb about my work like you do. He says, well, I'm not a fool. (laughs) I'm doing what's making us all this money. I said, yeah, but you have feelings. Shouldn't you you want them to say that the two of them were impeccable, that the two of them work together like no one you've ever seen before, and they are entitled to all that money they're making? That Ed Sullivan, for 47 straight weeks, we knocked him on his behind. Every time we came up against Sullivan, he was dead. But Sullivan beat everything on NBC that wasn't us. I said, how can you forget that? There was such extraordinary spontaneity. It looked like you guys were making it all up. That's because we were frightened. (laughs) And that's one of those truths that come through when you're really coming from a real place. Dean and I could never do anything like, let's make believe we're having a good time. We could never do that. And the audience could never walk out and say to one another, I've never been entertained that way. They would like to say it, but don't know how to say it because they don't recognize really what it is. And they found out after three or four or five years that we really cared desperately for one another. And that was what was connecting to them. They liked the connection. They liked to see two men loving one another or to anyone loving one another. Remember, we came out of a war. Dean and I were absolute, we, was, we were the rummage from the war. 45, the war was over. Yeah. And we teamed up in 46. Yeah. And people were attaching this laughter, this freedom of thought, and this nonsense and craziness and laughter to these two guys that are making us forget the war. And that's what we had. We had the benefit of 1946 to 1956. 
And whether you remember it or not, we teamed up on the night of July 25th, 1946, and we broke up on the night of July 25th, 1956, 10 years to the day. Wow. And what we were able to accomplish in that short span of time, because it's really short if you think about George Burns and Gracie Allen, they did 21 years together before they got out of the boondocks. Yeah. Oh my God. Jack Benny had been at it for God knows how long before he struck pay dirt. So we were together a short amount of time to have covered the areas we covered. I mean, I can tell you stories about women and men that wanted to touch his hand. They wanted to just make contact with him because he did something that was very relevant. He did something that touched their heart. And it means a great deal to people when they identify to the degree that they carry you in their hearts and minds. That's what gets you $300 million. Yeah. Because did you take a bath this morning? Ain't the reason. No, it's what you do. It's, it's what was there. The, the man and the woman that went to the Copa were driving home at night. And he said to his wife, well, what did you think? And she said, what did they do? I mean, this goes right all the way up to the top. Sidney Crocker was booking the Lowe's Capitol. We were going to play the Capitol. And he said, I saw the show with the Copa last night. And my wife asked me to please tell her, what do they do? He said, whatever it is, I want it. <laughs> and we were booked into the Capitol Theater three months later. Had a lot of money. So there were, there were little things that I think the critics and people that write about showbiz missed. Yeah. They were looking at that, that very, very basic front and never went back here to see what is all that. And that's where we had, we had our audience. I mean, we could do nothing wrong. There was such affection between you. Yeah. It was amazing. Unbelievable. There were four show business phenomena in the 20th century. Sinatra, Presley, the Beatles, and Martin and Lewis. Right. What was that like to be in the middle of that? I mean, it was, it was extraordinary. It was like a, a hysteria kind of. We were, uh, we, we were out it like of it. like to be in the middle of that? Yeah, we were out of it at that time. We couldn't believe what was happening. I mean, we went to the Chicago Theater, and we had just completed the New York Paramount. We were doing eight shows a day. And when they came backstage on that Saturday morning and told us they're running into trouble, they can't get the people in and can't get them out fast enough, can we cut some more and do a ninth show? I said, well, cut some of the movie. You're going to have to make an edit in the film because we're running out of time. Right now we're doing eight shows. The first one is at 8.50 in the morning, and the last one's at 12.55 the next day. Where are you going to put the ninth show? They said, give it to us. We don't care. And I went up to the projection room. And I made an edit in the film that I knew because we were in it. And I made a cut of ten minutes that that audience one day will pay me homage for. <laughs> it was all Marie Wilson and Diana Lynn. And it was wasted material. And I figured... Get it out of there. (laughs) 
I got it out of there, and the last show was at 1.55 in the morning. We did nine that Saturday. We go to Chicago Theater, and we started with eight a day. They wanted the same schedule we did in New York, and they wanted the same returns as well. People were paying 25 cents to see Martin and Lewis before 10 a.m. and the film. We took $399,000 out of the New York Paramount for two weeks when they were getting a quarter a ticket. Wow, Jesus. Wasn't there, a, wasn't there a, at the Paramount where you were playing and the, the audience wouldn't leave, so you had to do a show yeah. on the balcony? Well, that didn't work. What I did was I said, folks, if you come out now, our dressing rooms are right around 44th. Come out now and we'll give you autographed pictures. You want to see 4,000 people jam those exits to get out. And we're in our windows throwing the pictures. Yeah, and it caused the traffic jam to 57. The mayor came to our dressing room and said, can you please stop this crap, for Christ's sake. I said, you want a picture, mayor? Yes. said, write it out to Benji. (laughs) To Benji. I said, of course, it's a Benji. So we played. (laughs) We played all of that. And we did all of that. And the... um, The speed with which it all happened was always my favorite, I don't believe it, is the speed with which it happened. Because coming from a show business family and watching my dad and everything that he did and all the stuff around him, I knew that we were, it was up in the galaxies. It was off into something up there that nobody ever saw before. And it was quite fast while no one understood how could it happen that quickly. Yeah. Well, quickly is, you know, it depends on where you are and what you're doing and if you're happy at the time. And there's so much involved. An individual audience member has to commit so much of themselves to enjoy them. They can't just sit and watch and leave. They get emotionally involved. Yeah. When you do that with an audience, you have made a friend for life. Just as if the audience became emotionally negatively involved, you're finished. Yeah. Forget it. If you turn the audience negative, you're out. I, you saw, well I saw you at the Paramount, and you ran into the theater and yeah. up the balcony and around. It yeah. was amazing. I was 20. <laughs> if you asked me to do it now, I think it would take a while. Long time. A lot of the comedy was based on taking an established situation and, and wrecking it or destroying exactly, it. Yeah. Where did that come from? Well, it was my need to, to implement what we were doing with an outside force. The manager called and told me, or a heavy in the front row, or the girl that you wanted to hear from, the English she called, well, did you talk to her? Yeah, I'm seeing her for dinner. He said, you what? And that starts, and we go from there. Um, we always had to have a contemporary feeling in when we were working. People love to hear that you went to Child's. It was a restaurant yeah. chain at the time. Or that we spent time with Burl at Lindy's after the last show. And people loved that connection. And then you got to remember something else. All of the kids that were graduating 
in 1947, 48, 49, 50, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. We had all of those kids over those years graduating and wanting to have their prom night with us. We did more prom shows than any living entertainer. Really? Oh, yeah. We did three a night, 8, 12, and 2, and we were sneaking one in at 4. But if the authorities ever found out, we'd close her down because you can't do that selling booze. I told him, come up to the room. Dean and I will do a few minutes for $30. You know, anything. And the people would spend anything to get in. The head man at the time was Joe Lopez. Joe Lopez was a head waiter. And it is proper and good manners if you take care of the head waiter that got you a table. Well, it got to, if you want a Martin and Lewis table, it got to the $25 tip to $250 to $300 tip. Then we find out he's getting two $100 bills for a table. And before you know it, Joe Lopez, in a two-week period with Martin and Lewis at the Copa, he did (laughs) $39,000. He was doing more than the club. (laughs) The people that sent us (coughs) letters of gratitude were the New York Hackers. The New York Hackers was a group of yellow cab drivers that sat outside the Copa at 2.30 in the morning. They wanted to go that way, which was Newark, Patterson, Jamaica, or whatever. They waited, and these people were told, well, we don't, know, we don't know about going to Bloomfield, New Jersey. Yeah, but there's another 25 in it. Oh, get in. They became the hackers. The Martin and Lewis hackers, they made a fortune. They just kept running to Jersey and coming back, running to Jersey and coming back. The meter read $22. The guy gave him $70. i am coming here tomorrow again. <laughs> that was what was happening. See, every time there's a good thing in our life, I at least teach this to my daughter. When there's a wonderful thing in our lives, there is stuff that permeates, that comes off that wonderful thing. There's eight, nine wonderful things happening because of that. And I think that that's true with how you live your life. If you do some good stuff, you're going to get a lot of good stuff back. But that whole Martin and Lewis syndrome ran very deep. Hackers, bellboys, elevator operators, uh, all of the New York clique, as it were. That whole section of Copa was only in about 35, 36 streets. And people would come to there. It would create more business at the, at, at the concession. The guy that had the open-air corn, put butter on it, and you got a 30-cent corn. You're waiting for, uh, to get in line to see Martin and Lewis. He was selling more corn than he ever sold in his life. It has an effect on everything and everyone. Well, when it, when it finally fell apart, or when you guys broke up, yeah. it affected everybody. Oh yeah, it was a, it was a kind of a traumatic thing that I remember for my for me, well, and I was a kid. You should see the mail that we had, and I I saved so much of it because it was not something you would throw away. Uh, dear Dean and Jerry, my life with my husband has been exquisite. I love him; he loves me. 
But when you two guys split up, we split up. <laughs> now, this wasn't a joke. It was a letter from a lady that had that happen in her life. So you say, well, that's a little off the wall. No, they did. They split up. And then this little girl that won't talk to her girlfriend anymore because they saw Martin and Lewis, but she didn't take her like she promised. It was the kind of male, how dare you? You're splitting up. What do we do Sunday night? Are you nuts? You have no right to do this. You see, the connection there was that they belonged to us as we belonged to them. And the only people that ever knew what that nuance was in our business was Jack Benny and Jimmy Durante and uh, Sophie Tucker. Uh, The greats at the beginning of Chauvin's, Al Jolson. The audience made them part of them because they loved them so much and they wanted them to know it. And that's, that's the one... That, that's the one small detail that has to be examined by other than myself. And that was that people fell in love with what they were doing and looked upon what they were doing as a benefit to their lives. And well, you, you can't you, stop them from that. You mean to tell me those two crazy schmucks, what they carry on, you change your life? Huh, you'll never know. And you won't because they can't tell you. You said once that uh, the love that, was, that, that, that passed between you two, if you could bottle it. Yeah. Oh, God almighty. There'd never be another war in the world. Yeah. Could, you couldn't, couldn't bottle it. Because it, we were locked into it by no particular reason that was our fault. You don't certainly look at something that, like that that happened as a fault, but you wonder about it. Uh, you see some of that... Male, it was so so moving and so sensitive. We loved you so much, and what do we do now? Where did you take that love? Um, letters that revealed that they wouldn't have known what their marriage meant until they started to be fun with one another. Yeah. And we helped motivate that. You can't tell people not to feel that way. It's very... It's, it's, it's an, when, you, when you attack the emotion of an audience... That means you're there forever. What was it that broke it up, Jerry? We had 10 wonderful years. And I think that one of the things that had to be a real, a particular source was the fact that Dean finally started to read where they mentioned, oh, he did a song. Mm -hmm. Remember, Jerry this, Jerry that, Jerry this, Jerry that. Then Jerry wound up the businessman. I talked business with everybody. I made sure that we did this and so forth and so on. Dean played golf. I ran the company. Jerry, I have to call Jerry about that. You get enough of that, and I don't care who you are. You'd like to go bye-bye. And he had enough of that. Plus, he wanted to see what he could do as an individual without Jerry in the office and without Jerry standing on his left. He had a craving for self gratification and he couldn't do that with me and then when I saw that I forced it I knew it was right and I knew that I needed to go and take my energies and move them in directions that are now stagnated because we did two films a year we did 26 weeks in radio 
We did television 10 times. We've done that already. And we're now into the fourth year of doing that. What about something new? Well, (laughs) it's very, very difficult to break what we were able to project to the audience. And when it was time for us to make a change, we never thought in terms of what are they going to feel like. You didn't. I never felt I owed the audience anything until I got that mail. Mm. Then I realized, holy Christ, this is bigger than we ever thought. We have to start finding a way to get through to these people who were very genuine and very sincere about their plight. Yeah, if you get a letter that says, uh, uh, we used to love to have you guys on television. When you were on television, we had the best sex in the world. You don't pay any attention to that. (laughs) You know, a moron from Hartford, Connecticut. (laughs) But the other things were so pointed and had such sensitivity to them that it did affect you. I'll give you an example. If you sit a Barbara Streisand fan from day one till today in a chair, you'll hear stuff from her that you never heard from any other individual, only because she is that fan. That lady there that doesn't particularly care that much about Barbara will give you a whole different, a whole different look yeah. at life. That's how different that is. And we see the fan as someone who needs to connect. And you can't go around not connecting. Yeah. It's very difficult. It's very tough. Because I, I don't want the audience to have my life. I don't want to have to ask them when I can hold my daughter. <laughs> I don't want them to have that. Yeah. And a lot of people fight that because it gets, it gets into the actual lifestyle and it becomes very difficult. You know, the guy that says, I love you so much, and if he squeezes any harder, he's going to rip my throat apart. He's got his arm around here, and he's holding my chest, and he's telling me how much he loves me. Don't love me so much, I'd like to breathe a little more. (laughs) We were coming out of the Chicago Theater, and we had a bridge. Now, a bridge is a patrol of police officers that work it this way. As you walk, they spread the bridge to let you in, and when you're in, they have you here and protecting you for the next bridge. And Dean and I had that in Chicago for three solid weeks. After every show we went out, we'd have the bridge. This one day, this lady grabbed me, and she grabbed me really by the throat, above my shirt and into the collar, and grabbed me with a chokehold while she was screaming at how much she loves me and that I'll never, ever know. And she is now doing a dissertation (laughs) as my last breath is knocking on my brain. You better do something, putz. And I hit her a shot. (laughs) I hit her right here. I'm told I broke her jaw, but... We had to get out of there. And uh, after I did it, the cops took me into the car, got me in there. We went to the hotel. Now we're waiting to hear what's going to happen from that. 
And the theater had called. They called the theater security, and they said they've got her. They've taken her to the emergency hospital. They're fixing her broken jaw. And uh, she knows that if she calls a lawyer, she can get lucky. So that's where we left it. She wound up getting $475,000 as a nuisance case. And I paid all the medical bills. My God. Yeah. You were trying she to save your life. So, she loved me so much. She almost <laughs> Yeah. When, when you broke up and Dean went with the Rat Pack, yeah. it looks like when you see him do, performing with Frank and everybody, it's like he took part of what you used to do. He'd break up, he'd break up that act. Yeah. That he, was, that's what he did. He replaced me with four other people. Yeah. It was a wonderful idea. Yeah. It worked like a charm. They all loved that he had this freedom on stage and didn't know where he got it. Well, <laughs> well, we know where he got it. Yeah. And he brought that all to that playing well, field. Well, it's fascinating to see the comedy hour and see him watching you like a hawk. <laughs> yeah, he always did that. Watching what, when he should move in, when he shouldn't move in. And he always out. knew exactly when yeah, and when not. Let's run a clip of, uh, from, 1950, from 1976. 76. That was, a, that was a lovely year. September 3rd was terrific. That was, a, was that what we're talking about? The, the tel- yeah. This was on the Jerry's Telethon when Frank Sinatra uh, surprised Jerry. That's number six up there. If you run number six. Number six. I like that. My life is reduced to numbers. You were unfazed by things happening out of the blue, weren't you, always? And you were live. Well, I had a great respect for live, and I was always on my toes and kept my head very centered because everyone else's were bounding around. I kept my head centered. I knew where we were at all times and what was happening. And if necessary, I would take the leap and get out there in front and fix it or do something. But to stand back and watch everybody with the what's happening. Mm-mm. Yeah, but I mean, that takes a lot of it's, uh, whatever it takes. I don't know what it takes, but it's extraordinary to be able to just react like that. How did you feel when that happened, when Dean came out? What was that like? Well, I hadn't seen him in 20 years. Yeah. And it was, it was staggering to me. I'm thinking, look at the courage on this man. He's coming on my turf. Look at the courage of Frank to pull it off. And I thought they were both superior beings. You had no idea. No, oh, God, no. Oh, no. I had, I had a crew of 588 people that knew. That whole crew of mine knew. I didn't. It's amazing. All you have to do is to get a copy of that moment and freeze frame when Dean steps into the stop mark, when he comes to me and stops. Freeze frame that material and just look at my eyes and you'll know what you're seeing. It was stunning. After that happened, we had 20 years together again until he died. 
We had some meaningful moments and some wonderful laughs. And it was terrific. And Frank did that because he cared. He was always that kind of a man. Very caring, loving man. And he did that for us. But think about the chance he took. But he knew me very well. He knew I would never humiliate him. He knew coming on my turf doesn't mean I'm going to now do something that will embarrass you. He knew better. I didn't know better. I knew then what he knew. (laughs) But it's very, very cagey. I'll give you an example. I booked a group that I had seen in Omaha. And they were doing some great work. And I said, let's put them on the show. I fly them from Omaha, bring them out. And we had an audience going in. We knew we were playing to 78 or 80 million people. And I usually hold them for that whole time. And it's been that way for a long time. And they would love that. We brought them out. I'm in my dressing room. I had just finished doing some crazy thing, and I'm changing clothes, and they said, we got a problem with the group. I run out. We're live for 80 million people. And they said the male lead singer, has he lost his voice. He can't sing. Well, just go out and do what you were going to do. And everybody looked at me, and I looked at them. I made one adjustment. And then I said, let's go. And that's what I wanted to put up there now. Oh, you mean the... When uh, I said, let's go. (laughs) Yeah, when I said, let's go, is when I said that. Yeah, number seven. To mention that after the show, the group split up. (laughs) And the little guy is suing me for whiplash. But that's what happened. That was everything was ad lib. Everything time. you saw there, they just got in place. I moved the one little guy who was way at the end. I brought him right to that spot, and we went on. It's hysterical. I got lucky. How did you start directing, Jerry? Well, I had didn't, written, you, didn't you do some home home movies first? Well, we like, did. We take, did you home did, movies. You did Sunset Boulevard, and you called it Fairfax Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, we did, um, we did a half a dozen satirical um, Fairfax Avenue was Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Then we did The Reinforcer. The Reinforcer? Yeah, we shot credits over a jockstrap. That was... <laughs> and, uh, I'd love to see some of those. Yeah, so would a lot of people. <laughs> I had the home movie company was Janet Lee, Tony Curtis, Jeff Chandler, uh, Dean, Dean, of course, John Barrymore Jr., uh, Mona Freeman. Um, it was a stock your own stock company? Yeah, and you my did- doctor was on a sound. My doctor that took care of me worked. He loved to be in the movie business. He was on the sound. I said, what happens if someone has a heart attack? He said, they're going to hear it. Very good. (laughs) Anyhow, we did uh, come back, little (laughs) shiksa. 
<laughs> and I had so much fun that I wanted everyone that had actual relation to the product. The ones that really did come back Little Sheba were invited to a premiere at my home. And I cut the picture with that date in mind. And we had about 900 people in my theater at home. And we ran Come Back Little Shiksa. And Dean was playing the drunk, naturally. And um, Janet Lee was playing the wife. And we had, we had an instance there where John Barrymore was supposed to play the young stud, and we get a call the morning we were about to shoot, and they said he got held up in San Bernardino. He can't make it. I said, don't worry about it. So I had Janet get on the phone. We did the phony ring. She said, hello. What? Chuck was killed on Pico Boulevard? He was hit with a four iron? Oh, my God. We got rid of him. We went on. (laughs) And we finished. And it was, it was terrific fun. Then I, I went to New York, and Paramount wanted me to give them another film because I had already shot Cinderella. Cinderella yeah. And I had... Um, and they wanted to open in the summer, and you wanted to open right. in Christmas. And, uh, and that's why they wanted to see me in New York. And they knew that I had made what I thought was a great family package we went right to the recordings and all of the graphics and the artist work that I had and Walter Schaaf's score. And I had a date at Christmas time for families to see it. And Barney Ballman says to me in his office, he said, Jerry, you know, we got to have a Jerry movie in the summer. I said, well, Barney, I made this film with, with families in mind for Christmas. He said, well, geez, you got to let me take it for the summer. I said, don't. I'll give you a movie for the summer, Okay. He said, what are you talking about? I said, look at the date on his calendar on the desk. I said, it's January 3rd. I'll give you a movie for the summer, which means I have to deliver it May 30th. That meant I had to finish it, score it, edit, do it all. And he's looking at me like I'm insane. He said, are you telling me you're really going to commit to this? I said, I'll give you my handshake on it. My whole deal with Paramount was a handshake. We never had a contract. I said, Barney, you got a handshake. I went down to Florida that night, leaving him, and I had opened the next night at the Fontainebleau. Right. And then I proceeded to write The Bellboy that night. I did two shows and went to my suite and started to write. And in uh, nine days, I had 160 pages. (laughs) Okay? I had a crew sent from Hollywood. I put everything together locally. And I was shooting 27 days after I said to Barney, you're going to have it. Wow. And I shot it in 30 days. I had people running around like it was a chicken with the head cut off with actors from here, from New York. I had them sent from California. No, let that guy do it. Now I had a bellboy from another hotel playing a rich man in a scene that didn't work. I cut it out. But meanwhile, I finished the movie. And I was opening in Las Vegas at the Sands. And I had my editors and my whole gear was brought in downstairs at the Sands backstage. I was cutting the final edits to the bellboy. I finished three weeks at the Sands the day after I finished making the edit. 
I shipped it to Los Angeles. We did the post material in the next six weeks. And Barney Balaban had the print ready to go to theaters on um, May 29th. That's amazing. Didn't you tell me that they didn't, they didn't believe you could do it, so you had to pay for it yourself? Right. They, right. Backed, they backed out of the agreement, which was we made our pictures together on a 50-50 basis. So I said, take the contract of our last deal and make it work for Bellboy. They said, well, we're a little nervous about it. It's a silent movie. I said, really? You haven't looked at it, have you? Uh, well, we're nervous. I said, well, don't be nervous. I'll pay the tab. I took it away from them. And to date... That movie has brought me over $200 million in rentals. Every time they hear Bellboy, they, they, they go like that. <laughs> so they watch the big dog eat. And <laughs> we played it, played it out, and it was incredible. The is whole idea. Me? Nobody believed that I could write that much that short a time. Well, it is incredible. I don't know how the hell you did it. That was your first movie as a director for, yeah. for a commercial mm-hmm. release. And then you made five or six pictures right at one after the other. Yeah. And is that when you invented the video assist? 1956, I had already invented the video assist. The, video assist, the video assist is a closed-circuit monitor that enables you to see... Uh, why you're shooting enables you to see what you're shooting on a, on a TV monitor. Jerry invented that, and for years was the only person using it. Now everybody in the industry uses it on every picture. How did you come? How did that happen? Because nobody was doing it. But I just mean, thought if I was going to direct a film of myself, I'm going to have to have that information. I'm not going to direct a film when I say to some Barney, "How was it? It was funny. Print it." No way. No, sorry. So before I would take the uh, directorial reins, knowing what that meant, I figured I'm going to have a tool that's going to help me, that I can trust. And I went to see Mr. Morita of Sony. I flew to Japan about 35 times in the next four years. And I was working with Iti, his son, who helped me tremendously in getting the beam splitter, getting the electronic code, and making what I had to have to do what I wanted to do. So I put it together and made it work. And the first time I had a chance to work with it was on the bellboy. And it was was So you could see yourself. Yeah, of course. Amazing. Yep, I used only... Video monitors, I'd use 30 or 35 of them on the set. Everywhere I was, I could see where we were when I was shooting, and I would either make the entrance or cut it. If it was fine, I'd continue. I'd have all that information wherever I looked. No one could understand how I would know what that meant. Well, you work it out. So uh, I remember seeing you on the telethon last year. I was with you, and you, the, the, they were shooting you, and you didn't like the angle. And I saw you underneath the camera go, <laughs> telling them, I don't know how you can perform and see yourself. I don't know how you do that. Well, to save your ass. I see. <laughs> <laughs> I watched you shoot a couple of your movies, and I noticed that, well, whenever Jerry shot a movie, it said on the, on the, on the stage door, 
everybody, this is not a closed set, come on in. And it was always pandemonium on your sets. I mean, yeah. you were kidding around constantly, throwing... We got, and we got the picture made, came in on budget, under schedule, and I had bleachers for six, seven hundred visitors all the time. I know. That, that inspired you, didn't it? It was great. I'm a ham. I made that audience watch what we were doing and found out that the 180 guys on my crew were just as hammy as me. They loved it. They loved oh, it. yes. I'm, uh, I'm with Jerry for uh, four years now. <laughs> I said, why don't we get you a dressing room, Eddie? That was his thing. He loved it. Everyone that worked on it loved it. I'd like to show a clip Number two. <laughs> That's why I sit like this. You actually hurt your back pretty badly. Oh, a number of times. Yeah, but I know you, you're often in a lot of pain from it, actually. So you, yeah, you... but show business is my life. <laughs> You didn't just fall. You jumped and hit and... Uh, unbelievable. Well done. There he is. <laughs> What's your favorite movie, Jerry? The Nutty Professor? No, my favorite movie's always been Rebecca. <laughs> What's your favorite movie that you made? Nutty Professor. Yeah. How did the idea for that come about? Some people said that you were, when you're doing Buddy Love, you were supposedly sending up Dean. Oh, shit. Uh, Are what, you serious? No, people have said that. Oh, I've heard that, but yeah. I look at them and I say, what's the matter with you? Don't you, you can't look back and see what we had? I would write that character as my partner? No, I know you didn't, but I'm, but I'm curious how the Well, anyone idea. that asks the question's a moron. <laughs> I didn't... Present company included. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I want to go into a Jerry Lewis moment now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Is that How did the idea come for Nutty Professor? I always wanted to do a comedy on a great classic. And I was always enamored by Jekyll and Hyde. I just loved the thought, which is awful close to a comic planning, of good and evil and how that would work in comedy. Well, I got to think about it. So I wrote and wrote, and then I got the first script I wrote was in 1958. And I sat with it, and I wasn't really pleased with it. I worked some more. Then I took a three-week period and went on my boat and threw the anchor out there in Point Loma and sat with my typewriter for three months. I was planning a three-week. It wound up three months, and I finished the script. I was really, really excited about it. And I put it together the best way I knew how. 
because I thought it would work if I had all of the all the elements that referred to him and to Buddy Love. If I had all those elements that were applicable while at the same time entertaining, it would work. And it did. Buddy Love, to me, was the toughest thing to ever do in my life. I hated shooting him. I hated him on the set. I hated what he said. I hated what he did. And I put all of that at the very end. I shot all of the professor who I adored. I did all of his stuff first. Got didn't, rid of that. Then didn't. I was stuck with this putz. Then I'm getting mail from women who loved him. I'm saying, what in the hell is the matter with you people? Oh, if I could only hold him. I'll give you what to hold. And that was, that, that was it. You had the idea for the professor. You said on a train. Yeah, I was riding to Chicago. I was going um, to open it at the Chicago Theater. And uh, Dean was meeting me. He was coming from Detroit. He was meeting me in Chicago. And this guy in the, in the dining car walked over to me and said, uh, could I, uh, would you mind to say, uh, do you have a couple of moments? I said, yeah. What, <laughs> what can I do for you? He said, well, I was sitting here having my barbecued, uh, my bar, that, no, what am I having, Helen? Oh, I'm having a Slurpee. And um, I just wanted to know if you and your partner, uh, Tony Martin, uh, do you two still do all of those nightclub shows and do skits and like that? I said, yes, we do. He said, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Could I, uh, <laughs> could I just write down where you're going to appear next? I said, well, our next appearance is going to be in Chicago at the Chez Prix. He said, that's fine. I've got that now. After that. Uh, we go back to Hollywood and make a film. What film was that? Uh, I believe it's uh, Hollywood or Bust. Good idea. Good idea. <laughs> so until I got rid of this putz, I went on, and, but he stayed up here. He stayed up there, boy, and I said, I got him. I knew I had him, but I don't know what I would have done had I not met that man. I don't know what, what character I would yeah, have developed for, for the him, professor. You know, because it's written pretty stoically. The professor is milk toast. He's, he's really uh, henpecked, but he's got a terrible terrible fear for the outside world and I'm, I'm structuring him for everyone to understand what we're making because I had nothing to show them. When we went into production I started to have to find the voice, the clothes, the teeth, everything. And I did work. Not for this guy. I don't know what I would have done. Frank Tashlin once told me that he, the, the, the scenes you hated doing were anything serious that you resisted those, they had to put them at the end of the schedule. Is that what you meant by Buddy Love? No, Buddy Love wasn't serious. He was sickening. But, was, <laughs> but serious scenes... No, I told Frank, I said, uh, we want to do as much as we can to get the laugh because people are going to walk up and get popcorn if you get too serious. Mm -hmm. 
and I believed that. And Frank and I tangled with certain scenes when they got a little heavy, and I'd say, Frank, they're paying us a lot of money, and not to do great stuff. Let's get funny. That's all. I just had to protect that, that end of the goal. You once told me that you felt that you hadn't quite even scratched the surface of what you could do. Is that true? Do you really feel that way? When I told you that in 1958, <laughs> I think I meant it. And I think I have already taken care of that. It's, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. When you play Germany or play France, you do, you do very funny uh, shtick in their language. Yeah! <laughs> yeah! Give me the German. Was ist ein <laughs> then, of course, in Japan, <laughs> I made a I made a birthday film for <laughs> for uh, Walter Scharf for his birthday, and I cut Jerry. In German, in Japanese, Swedish, uh, Span- Spanish, and six or seven cuts of doing one scene of all the same material in different voices. And it was hysterical. And he loved it. It was a wonderful night. What's the French? Oh, the French. Je And the Swedish? Swedish, they don't talk. <laughs> Swedish, they just sing. Where the hell did you come up with Swedish? <laughs> I don't know. I don't either. Let's run, uh, let's run Ford. Does that need a setup? That's the all legs. No, it doesn't need a setup. Just watch it. Four. Yeah. Jerry, we're running out of time. I'd love to ask you two more questions. Two more questions. One more. Two more. One more. Go ahead. Uh, do you have uh, any kind of advice for a living? You've lived 82 years, and you seem to have done a very good job of it. Well, I do. What, do you have any advice for people about? Well, I think I think that I got to the place I'm at in, uh, psychologically, anyhow, and that is uh, my life has been great for me because I think positively. When I think negatively, I lean negatively. So I try not to do that. And plus the fact, if you can think positively, you're going to spread that. And it's good to have that around my company and my family. And I think that until you get to about 72 or 73, you go through a crotchety period where you're a little, 
you're not too sure if you're going to make the toilet in time, you know. <laughs> but then, then comes 77 and 78 and 80, and you realize that you've been given a pretty good shot to be here that long. And all I can tell you, Peter, is that when I get up in the morning and I open my eyes, I'm a hit. How would you like to be remembered? I don't. <laughs> I don't. I'm serious. I've been asked that by some of the brilliant writers in this country. And I, so I've always told them the same thing. I don't want to be remembered. I want the nice words when I can hear them. What? Remember. Well, you've done so much charitable work and you, you, you've made people laugh. Uh, there's no end to the joy you've given to people, Jerry. Yeah, but they've given it right back to me. Well, that's the... That's, the... that's why I keep grinding it out, you know. <laughs> hey, I haven't heard a laugh in four days. I'll go to New York. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.